0: What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants, and they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp internal data 2021 based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco and New York City. Results may vary. Now here we go.
1: So if the word is integrity, it's doing the right thing when nobody's watching, just because it's the right thing to do. And then I pose the question to each and every one of my team members, okay, give me an example of how we practice integrity in our business. And it's a conversation. And that's when we start to see these ideas that were just ideas or little words on paper actually become part of something that we do.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Every problem has the same source and every problem has the same solution, people. But in the midst of this debilitating labor crisis, can we really afford to be choosing? How hard can we push our teams to strive for excellence before we push them out the door? Greg Provence is a hospitality expert, and he's come on the show to chat about how to transition from managing employees to leading leaders. Today, we talk tactics, tools, and strategies to level up ourselves and our teams.
1: Well, I started off in the entertainment business, actually, and while you're pursuing that dream, you're waiting tables and bartending, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) So, I found myself working in restaurants pretty much my whole life from my first job at 14 years old at Popeye's Chicken. Just kind of loved the, I don't know, I loved everything about the restaurant industry really from the get-go. Just the social aspect of it, never really been kind of a nine-to-five guy, I suppose. And so then as the years progressed and I started growing a family, started realizing I kind of better get serious about something that's going to bring in a steady income. And really the only skill set I think I had had at that point was... <laughs> restaurants. So I figured, okay, I'm going to take that management position they've been offering me for years and I've been turning down. And I'd also known that I didn't want to just kind of make my end game restaurant management necessarily. Not that that's a terrible thing. I mean, I thought it was the kiss of death at one point in my life, (laughs) but I definitely didn't want to just kind of cap out being the general manager inside one location. So I set some goals for myself and I started thinking about restaurant ownership and what that would mean. And then I decided, well, I don't want to just necessarily go out on my own and just start a one-off. So I started helping other people build their businesses kind of on the side while I was working my corporate job as a general manager. And what I found was there's a lot of power in that process. And I got a lot of joy out of that process because we were seeing results and I was able to kind of, really learn a lot more about different concepts and different ways of working, working with different entrepreneurs with startups and people that are looking to scale and that type of thing. And so it just kind of naturally progressed that the consulting advisory route was what I took. And so then GP Hospitality Partners was born just before the pandemic. And I was fortunate enough to have a couple of clients to allow me to step out on my own and get things going. And here it is. So yeah.
0: So when you started coaching and consulting, did you start as a generalist? Yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing at the
1: moment. All I knew is there were people that needed help and whatever they needed help with, I would just jump in, right? And so, yeah, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, we kind of start really broad and then eventually start to niche down. I think my sweet spot is really working with people that are in early stage and wanting to scale. That's where I found my most success and my most joy.
0: And how would you say your perspective differs from most?
1: I like to see things out of the box. I'll give you an example. So I worked um, early on and worked with a company local here in San Diego called Everbowl. They started one location in Poway and they've grown out of 200 and something franchises across the United States. And one of the things I really found interesting is their founder, Jeff Fenster. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's, he's an amazing guy. He was not a restaurant guy when he started this business. He was very, very good at being a visionary and in marketing and that type of thing. And as he was building his businesses, I was watching him make decisions that restaurateurs would probably never make, (laughs) you know, really thinking outside of the box. And as a result, he was able to really disrupt the market and really kind of grow very quickly and organically at the same time. I was really impressed by that. And so that impressed upon me, the really importance of whenever I'm coming to a project is really like, let's think of something different that we can do to get a better result. Maybe not do the same thing we've always done and kind of get stuck in that mindset.
0: What are some of the things that you saw him do that you think an average restaurateur wouldn't do?
1: One of the things that was kind of really integral to the growth of that brand was there was a problem, right? Which was How do we maintain consistency across the brand? How do we open stores quickly and efficiently? Because the rate of growth that they were achieving was pretty astounding, right? It was like five, six short years they've got all these locations. We grew to 30 corporate stores within, I think, a year and a half. So one of the innovations was, well, let's form a company that's sort of a build element to our business, and we'll build everything in-house. We'll do all the branding. We'll do all of the... um, things each store is needed, and then we'll ship it out to the store and we'll retrofit it. So you're really not building a new store every time you sign a lease. You're just installing a store every time you sign a lease. And so that cut the turnaround time of build um, to, I think they average about 30, 35 days to open a store from time they get occupancy, which is pretty impressive. And it also allowed them to control the branding elements to a degree that really maintained that type of consistency of the brand. So I thought that was pretty amazing.
0: When you look at working with early stage startups that are looking to scale, what are common problems that you see that they have that you typically help with?
1: I think one of the biggest issues is when you're talking about scaling, it's really all about developing systems that you're going to be able to rely on in order to scale. Right. And I found that so many restaurant owners, whether they're looking to scale to multiple locations or really just kind of scale their operation internally, like increase sales and profitability and that type of thing. What's often lacking is really solid systems of operation. That's not to say they don't exist, but I can't tell you how many times I walk into a new client's business. I'm not blaming anybody for this or saying it's good or bad, but you know, oftentimes I walk in and I ask for financials, or we look over their inventory, or we look over certain systems that are fairly integral to an operation, and they're either lacking or non-existent right? And why is that? Well, it's often because the new restaurant owner, the early stage owner is just so busy. They're so busy keeping the doors open, feeding guests and doing all the things that you need to do to keep your operation going. There's so little time left in the day to create those systems. And so by finding time to kind of step out and work on those elements of the business, you can find a great degree of freedom and you're also positioning yourself for growth. It's just a little bit more heavy lifting on the front end.
0: But it's so boring. It's oh, like yeah. that's, that's all the boring stuff. And honestly, it's kind of frightening, right? It's like when you set a budget for a restaurant. In my fine dining restaurant, my business partner was my executive chef. And you know when we talked about recipe cards and all that, he goes, "I just don't want to do it because it's going to stifle creativity. But you see restaurants with great food and great drinks and great service close every day. It's about attention to detail. And the detail work are the numbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. It is. It's incredibly boring and tedious and all of those things. But I would argue that they're very, very necessary. And the good thing about it is, though, is once you get those systems in place and you really start managing them, it improves your quality of life because now you've streamlined things and you've got things in place that are going to help your operation and help your teams operate better. So everything tends to go a little bit more smoothly and allows owners, you know, one of the things that we do that we pride ourselves on is we really help owners to get freedom back in their lives, right? Because owner operators are just, just often very overwhelmed. And so we walk them through that process of getting those systems in place. We help them. Some of it's done for you, but a lot of it really is just about getting them to enjoy the quality of life that they had dreamed of to begin with when they opened their business, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely. I talk with independent owners and operators all the time. And I say, you know, why did you start this business? And everyone's got the same answer, right? Freedom, self-determination. I'm like, do you feel free? Do you feel like you are determining what your future looks like? We become slaves to these things that we build that are supposed to be tools of independence, tools of freedom outside of actually building out the systems. Are there tools that you like? Are there tools that you recommend? Oh man, that's a
1: Pandora's box. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We could go down rabbit holes with that. I mean, I have POS systems that I favor these days. Definitely got some different backend things that I tend to recommend to clients, but it really is all kind of about their particular situation and what their goals are. What I do though recommend is making sure that people do have something that they can rely on and that's easy to manage for them. Right? Let's take a scheduling system, for instance. At this point, I think most people are probably using something like a hot schedules or a schedule fly or something like that. I don't know that they're always getting the most out of those tools. There's forecasting features that they should be using for scheduling purposes to manage their labor cost, right? There's messaging features to communicate with your teams that you can utilize for different things. And so I think getting the most out of the technology is pretty important. And then also sometimes technology is not the answer. Sometimes it's better just to go to an Excel spreadsheet to get certain things done because it's just easier for you and your team. you know. So I think sometimes people get overburdened with all the technology and how it all fits together. And I mean, it's only as good as it's managed to begin with. So it just kind of depends on what the goal is and what your situation is and how to
0: apply it best. So you're working directly with owners and operators, but most of what gets executed is going to get executed by a line level employee. How do you create that level of alignment between you and your team, the leadership team of that organization, and the line-level employees that have to execute on that vision?
1: Alliance of the team is something that is a struggle for some. I think first thing to do is to analyze what type of leader the owner, or in some cases the GM, or whatever the leadership that's running it is. There's micromanagers, we've heard that term a lot before. And then there's people that are really good at delegating and just saying, here's the keys and go, right? And there's actually benefit to both sides of those things. The micromanager tends to be one that really just has their hands in everything. And the hard part about that is just to get them to let go and let their teams thrive. And so we really kind of work with those types of owners to help them to understand it's safe and okay to allow some people to rise up and take control over certain things. And it's actually beneficial for everyone involved. And that's just leadership training. And then you have the delegator who's just kind of really hands off and they're like, here, take it and run with it. And then they wonder why everything's going wrong, right? And the challenge with them usually is, is they don't have some type of either systems in place that they've developed to allow that process to happen or they're just not necessarily following up in the proper way to inspect that things are going right. They haven't really let kind of given the right expectations out, right? So then we start talking about culture and onboarding and have you painted the vision for your team? Do they understand how it is that they contribute to the mission at hand, right? So couple different approaches depending on what we're dealing with there, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And you mentioned it earlier. Overwhelm is a very real thing. And there are so many things. I look at the course of my own career and there were like so many ideas I had, so many things that I worked so hard to execute. They just didn't have the desired result. They didn't actually move the needle. That Mm. special or that pop-up or that collaboration or whatever it was, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do where's the low-hanging fruit for most operators? What are the easiest things to improve on?
1: Yeah. So you're know, speaking of those things, I mean, I think it's oftentimes the ones we are most jazzed about that fall flat, right? <laughs> it's the things that we didn't suspect maybe that we're going to do well. I mean, when we're talking about low-hanging fruit, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in terms of both on the promotion side and on the profitability side, right? So. It's great to bring in a lot of people in the door, but it's really about how much of that is able to be translated into profitability, right? So we really want to, A, look at our systems of efficiency. We want to see our labor costs and our waste and those types of things and make sure those things are really being managed, right? Because if I'm making 20% of a million dollars or 10% of two, kind of the same thing. And then in terms of the promotional side, I think it's really about understanding who our guests are and what they really want, like really listening to what it is that they are desiring and try our best to communicate and deliver that to them in a very consistent and concise way. So if we're talking about like social media marketing, my suggestion to people is always, look, know what your brand speaks about, know who your audience is and do your best to provide as much value to them on a consistent basis over and over and over again. Just keep that message flowing. And then as far as just running promotions, I mean, there's a lot of different things we can do depending on our concept. One of the things that I find that works really well across a lot of concepts, and I'll just throw this out here, is a date night, right? We've done this with about three or four different clients recently with phenomenal success. And it really works well in the fine dining space, but even in the quick serve space, offering a great offer like two entrees and a bottle of wine for two on a Tuesday night where it's usually kind of slow we've seen cover counts go from average of 80 or so up to two, 250 consistently over time. And why is that? It's because that promotion is not just a coupon. It's not just a percentage off we threw out there. It's a feeling. You painted a whole picture, You know, date night, You know, like, okay, now I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm going for and I'm getting a great deal. So all those elements kind of combine to make something really special. So I'm always thinking of ways to paint the experience for people that they're going to get rather than just throwing out the coupon.
0: Well, and I think that that extends out. I think that that needs to be present on the website as well. I think that it needs to be present on their Yelp page and on their Google listing as well. I say this a lot, and I hope that the audience doesn't tire of hearing it. But why compete on food and beverage? That's a commodity game. And so why not compete on experience? Why not say, you know, come here for a great date night for two or to celebrate this occasion or to commemorate this. It's so much easier to provide the context through which people can use your products and services than it is to say, come in for this meal. I think
1: I agree with that.
0: Right. And the yep. context aside, I can tell you that for me personally, when I look at like my favorite restaurants in the city, the only thing that they need to do to convince me to come back is remind me that they exist. Because I'm fucking busy. You're busy, too. Like, everybody's busy. And I think that as restaurant owners and operators, we sit back and we think, I mean, this person hasn't been in a month. Did we do something wrong? Why aren't they thinking about us every day? People are busy. They have these busy lives. But when you think about the places you love, typically you're prompted to go when you remember that they exist. And so simply starting that communication cadence and saying, Hey, noticed you hadn't been in in a while. Just wanted to let you know that when you're ready, we're here. So many things like that can move the needle for us in an impactful way. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And it's funny too, when you say that, because I think, you know, we're talking about marketing here now, right? And so (laughs) that's such a frustrating piece, I think, for a lot of restaurant owners, because we hire these marketing firms, we throw a bunch of money at these ads, and is it really working? And, you know, is it really driving business and that type of thing? But Really, it is about consistency. Whatever we do consistently over time is going to get a result. Now, we don't want to do it poorly consistently. We don't want to run crappy ads <laughs> you know, over and over. But we do want to speak to our audience in a way that really lands for them, adding value. right? So for instance, if you're putting content out on any of the social media platforms, maybe engaging them with some little videos about you making your favorite salad and giving them that recipe, right? Talking about a great cocktail and meeting the bartender at the bar and how he's doing this for us right now. And maybe we're running this special this weekend, you can come in and grab it. Just experiential, conversational, real connections. Those really make a big difference, they really do. Seeing what was possible and going
0: from good to great, you're gonna learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of us as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next Restaurant Marketing Mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money-back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. You're speaking at a conference next year, and the topic of your talk is security issues that affect your profitability, cash management, theft, and liability. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to do is go through and unpack each one of those. Talk to me about the positive and negative ways that cash management can affect profitability.
1: I'm just going to kind of go out there and say that I'm a big fan of using as little cash in my restaurants as possible. I don't know that, you know, going out there and saying, okay, we're going cashless necessarily is the right term. But in the restaurants that I own, and in those that I consult for, I often recommend get rid of the cash drawers. And one reason is because of the security piece, right? And there are many, many reasons for this. I mean, go into the statistics of how people spend way more on credit and all kinds of other things. But as it relates to this topic, theft is a real thing, right? If I've got cash bars or cash drawers at my bars, there's probably some theft going on, right? So that's one. Number two, cash is quite frankly, kind of, you know, in some markets more than others is not safe. You got servers walking out the door with cash. And if you are known for being a place that doesn't necessarily take cash, it truly makes things a little safer. And then also cash is incredibly costly. You know, a lot of people think that, okay, there is a real cost of business to doing credit card transactions, right? You're probably paying somewhere between two and 3%, hopefully closer to two, if you've got a great setup, but in the traditional way of thinking is, is, well, cash, I don't have to pay that. Well, that is true. But there's a real cost to carrying cash besides the theft issue. You're also oftentimes, especially in more high volume and fine dining restaurants, especially you're paying high level managers to sit around and count cash, dole out tips, do all these cash related activities. And so now on a thousand dollar intake of cash that day, you're probably paying at the very least 40, 50 bucks to a manager to spend an hour, hour and a half. So now you're at four or 5% on that. On, on that equation, you know? So, I've actually done worse than my credit cards by taking the cash. So, for me, I'm a really big fan of cutting down the amount of cash that is going around the restaurants as a means to secure both physically secure the place but also secure your profitability.
0: It's hard to me about liability. What are the risks out there that many of us don't even know that we're taking?
1: Well, we operate in California, right? So, I think we're a very very heightened on heightened alert to any points of liability. But I mean, liability to our restaurants can come in many, many forms, right? One, we always have to be compliant with whatever mandates are out there, right? Whether that be health code, whether that be making sure our payroll is paid in proper way, team members are onboarded and things are filed and those types of things. Um, Always looking at ways to try to protect the business. And again, this goes back to our sort of systems conversation. A lot of times some of these things get dropped, not because they're just dropping the ball, but it's tedious sometimes to follow through with some of the things that are necessary (laughs) to make sure that we're compliant in certain ways. And so we really, really want to make sure that we are compliant and we're up to date on what those sort of latest sort of mandates are. I mean, it seems like every six months, something changes in California. We've got to like do something in a different way, but just really staying informed and staying up to date on those types of things can really help to protect the business. And then really just doing things with integrity. You know what I mean? I mean, if we're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do by our team members and employees, then we're probably going to reduce our liability as a result.
0: You own and you consult. And so I'm curious, there's this great question that was asked to me a long time ago, and it's always kind of stuck in my head. You know, If you were on a desert island with no contact with the outside world, and the only way you knew you were able to evaluate the overall health of your business was a little sheet of paper that had three numbers on it. What are those three numbers you would need to know to know whether your restaurants are doing well or not?
1: Oh, man, I'd say top line sales, prime cost, EBITDA. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's what I'm looking at almost daily.
0: Now, do you think that those are the results of efforts or are those symptoms or are those the actual issues? And what goes into each one of those and improving those in your mind when there are issues?
1: Well, I'd say the answer to that is both. So when I'm looking at the overall health of my restaurant from a financial standpoint, First of all, any restaurant owner that is not reviewing their financials on a regular basis, at least on a monthly basis, really needs to start doing that immediately. And they need to start training their teams, how the actions they take throughout their shift affect those numbers. Because, you know, with the way that the industry is going, and this is all industries, really, not just our industry, but particularly in our industry, those margins are shrinking. They weren't great to begin with, as we all know. (laughs) Right. And you when you're looking at sometimes, you know, five to ten percent that you're taking home to begin with, you've got to really, really do your diligence to stay competitive. And we're talking about positioning for scale. Profitability is a key factor in that. And so really the systems that we're talking about installing all lead to that end. Whether it be top line sales, so we're talking about building business, our marketing, our guest service. All of the things that are bringing the butts in the seats, right? Then you're looking at your prime cost, which is your biggest control. is your food costs and your labor costs. Constantly looking at how can we improve our food costs while maintaining the same quality we've always wanted to have. And things like food waste come into play when it comes to that. Our prep items. How are we prepping? Are we well cross-utilized across our menu? Is our menu too broad or can we consolidate some things? All of those things go into our food cost and more. And then our labor. How are we managing our labor? Are our teams cross-trained in different departments to help create efficiency? Are we monitoring in times and out times and breaks and all of those things? Are we scheduling to a budget so that we know what our labor should be going into the shift before we're chasing our tail at the end of the shift? So all of those things go into that line. And then of course the EBITDA, you know, our bottom line, all of those other expenses, everything from Running the AC all day when it doesn't need to be, you know, to linen costs or whatever those other costs might be. So it's really, really important that we have a good handle
0: on all of those different items that are portrayed
1: on that all important PL.
0: People are the problem and the solution to all that ails us. Mm. But great people aren't cheap. And so I'm sure you've gone into organizations in the past where you've had to convince an owner or operator to bring in someone that they might not be able to afford. In that moment, it requires a massive leap of faith. Talk me through that process.
1: You know, people are really everything when it comes to our business. We're not really in the business of food, we're in the business of people. And that is starting with our teams. And I think the more that we can invest into our teams, the better, because we will get return on that investment. Now, that said, It doesn't necessarily always need to be a dollar investment. There are other points of value that people really sort of orient around and are attracted to, one being a really solid culture. Um, Creating a culture that is based in our core values and really having that communication with our team on a regular basis as to what that looks like and how they affect that makes massive difference. And so we have a really harmonious and upbeat company culture. It's very, very easy at that point, really, to run our operation because everybody's kind of marching to the same beat. They're going in the same direction, and we're all informed about what that direction is. But that said, yes, sometimes we do have to invest financially in that great talent. We really do. But the theory behind that would be you don't really know until you get them in. I mean, honestly, like... It can't I'm not gonna misguide anybody and say it can't backfire because it can, which is why people really should be vetted and they really should be hired for culture, not necessarily the experience. And that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. But when we do have to invest in those people, it's important that we spend the time with them to really indoctrinate them into the culture and into the organization. Really spend that time training them and supporting them because if you have a good, good operator and a good self-starter they can pay dividends. They really can.
0: 100%. And I would also say that in hiring someone that is better than you is never a bad idea. One of the hurdles in our industry is that we're obligated to be good at everything when we didn't really get into this to do everything. And it's no matter how many years you're in it, as soon as you own your first place, you're like, shit, I've got to do all of this. And I've got to be great at all of this. And so many times we find ourselves being the smartest person in the room and what a cold, lonely place that is to be. And it's certainly not a recipe for success. And I can't tell you how many people I've sat across from that said, well, you know, I tried that and I hired someone and I delegated to them and they did a poor job. And so I think delegating isn't the answer for me. And I would argue delegating is the answer for you. You just delegate it to the wrong person. There is nothing wrong with a fear of failure. Like the principle in and of itself is still right. And we should always be looking to hire people better than us. And I'm all for promoting within our own ranks, but only if the person that's leading the team is dramatically better than me at all of the things that I'm not great at. And until that day comes, like you have to hire better than yourself. It's not about you teaching someone how to do a job that you're mediocre at. It's about bringing in someone that's done the job that can teach you how to level up. I completely
1: agree with that, man. I'll tell you, I have no interest whatsoever in becoming a sommelier. That's not my jam. And so if I'm running a restaurant that has a big wine program, the first thing I hire is somebody that understands that world and is passionate about it because that's not me, (laughs) period.
0: You know, I was having this conversation with a client recently and he was like, listen, man, like I'm not prepared to spend $130,000 on a director of operations. And I said, well, you're not. You're not spending that at all. I mean, you don't pay somebody a salary up front. You're paying them monthly. So if there's an issue, you'll know early enough along in the process that you will not have paid out $130,000. Very, very good. Right. People make you money. They don't cost you money. So if he's bringing in $1.3 million in sales off the $130,000 that you're paying him he's well worth the money, right? It's this broken dynamic between understanding what an expense is versus an investment. And the reason I'm beating this horse to death is because I want to dig deeper into culture with you. Because culture is one of those things that I think we all intend to create once we're profitable once we're rich once we're rich and we're bringing in a ton of money that's when we're going to shut down the restaurant for two days and take everyone on a retreat that's when we're going to start offering subsidized healthcare and retirement programs to our team that's when we're really going to invest in learning and really teaching these people not only the professional skills but the life skills that they need to be successful and it's very much a chicken in the egg conversation to have isn't it
1: oh man This is something I could talk about for days, but agreed culture first. I mean, that flat out for me, culture first, it is the foundation. Whenever I have a conversation with someone that is in this business, culture always tends to come up in some form or fashion. And I think sometimes the head scratcher is, well, how does that really get implemented? What does it really look like? Because... When we think of culture, sometimes we think of, okay, well, maybe there's a mission statement. Maybe not. It's 50-50 for most businesses. And then if there is, it's probably written down somewhere. And there may be some core values that go along with that. And they may also be written down somewhere. But are they really, truly active? And by that, I mean, are they being lived throughout the organization? That is why you know, I think it's the second chapter in my book. I wrote a book called butts and seats, how to create raving fans who come back again and again. And one of the chapters is called living the mission. Right. And I talk about the idea that it's not enough to have just written a mission statement or even put it on the wall or even mention it from time to time. It's something we really, really need to activate. And here's my example. So whenever I have a team meeting, And especially in my all staff meetings, but even with my managers, the first thing we talk about is our culture, right? We recite the mission. I start a conversation about what our mission means and how they can list examples of ways we fulfilled on that mission or didn't fulfill on the mission this week. It's a whole conversation, right? And just like you, sometimes I think, well, maybe they're getting bored of this or they get sick of me beating this into them, but there's nothing more important in my opinion. And then we have a conversation around our core values. Generally, we have about three core values and not just the word, but the word defined. So if the word is integrity, it's doing the right thing when nobody's watching, just because it's the right thing to do. And then I pose the question to each and every one of my team members. Okay, what does that mean to you? How did that show up today for you? How will it show up with our guests? Give me an example of how we practice integrity in our business. And it's a conversation. And that's when we start to see these ideas that were just ideas or little words on paper actually become part of something that we do. It's active. And then it gets translated to our guests. And then our guests come to us and they start going, man, you've got the coolest, best staff ever. That's not by accident. That wasn't just us throwing some spaghetti at the wall and hoping it sticks. That was because we work hard at that. And every single person that comes into that organization gets indoctrinated into that and that becomes how they do things around there. And that's, my friends, how you grow and scale a business.
0: The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us?
1: I think a lot of our industry really is. And I'll say that because One thing that's I've seen a lot come out of this whole COVID situation is our industry really kind of banded together in a way that I had never really seen before. The playing field was leveled. You know, (laughs) we're all kind of in this situation where it's like, wow, we're all kind of on an even playing field now. And so, what I think that did is kind of humbled a lot of us, and we really kind of had to take a step back and rethink things and innovate and think outside of the box and I think a lot of what's happened too is we've started conversations amongst ourselves. Conversations like the one you and I are having right now. I don't know, at least that's been my experience. And so I'd love to see more of that. I'd love to see more restaurant owners coming together, talking about challenges, opportunities, ways that we can support each other, ways that we can teach each other these things that we're talking about here today and help each other activate them for greater success because there's plenty to go around there's a lot of competition out there. Yes, there really is. But people aren't going to stop eating tomorrow, you know, and they're not going to stop wanting experiences. In fact, they want them more than ever. And so for us to come together as a community is more important than it ever was. So I'd just like to see more of that, to be honest.
0: That's Greg Provence. For more on his business, visit gphospitalitypartners.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.